Philippians chapter number four. Let's go there. Philippians four. We are, we have a few more weeks left in this book, but not long. And we are at the end of really a section uh, verses one through nine of Philippians four is actually a section and we're nearing the end of this. So we began in verse number one with Paul saying, so here's how to be spiritually stable. Here's, here's how to have spiritual maturity. I want to show you, I want to enumerate this to you. And we've gone through already several marks of spiritual maturity. We talked about these two women who weren't getting along and Paul said, have the mind of Christ, get along. So relational wellness and harmony while you're exhibiting the mind of Christ is a mark of maturity. We talked about us taking a spirit of joy and having that permeate who we are. And the only way to do that in the tough times is to really understand who God is. So having a spirit of joy was a mark of maturity. Having this mindset of a non-retaliatory, non-vengeful behavior when someone criticizes you or persecutes you or ostracizes you is a mark of spiritual maturity, Paul says, and you're able to do that because you understand the presence of Jesus, that, that the Lord is at hand. And then we talked last week about taking our cares and turning them into prayers, taking our anxiety and our worry and pouring those out to God with thankfulness so that his peace could guard our mind and our hearts. And this week we'll look at verses eight and nine, which really is the end of this section. Verse eight very famous verse. Some of you may have even memorized it. And then verse 9. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are, and Paul's going to list eight things. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both now he's going to list four things. Learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Really, you could press this, these two verses down to this thinking and doing. Verse number eight, he's, talk, he's going to talk about our thought processes and thinking. Verse number nine, he's going to talk about the volition and the will and doing. But thinking and doing, which is vitally important for our Christian life. Well, I have three thoughts for you this morning. Curate healthy thoughts conduct yourself properly, and consider all things discerningly. And I want to take those in turn. I want to start with curating healthy thoughts. What happens in our mind is not just what verses 6 and 7 of Philippians 4 told us to do in that we avoid the negative or we pour out the worrisome or the troublesome or the anxious thoughts. That's part of it. But there is a portion as well of actively engaging in positive thinking. And thoughts are a part of our lives that no one will see and no one will hear and no one will know. But inevitably, if you have thoughts of envy or cynicism or lust or pessimism, you will turn into an envious or a lustful or a cynical or a pessimistic person. When you sow a thought, you reap an action. And when you sow an action, you reap a habit. And when you sow a habit, you reap a destiny. And it all begins with the mind. And Philippians 4 verse 8 is not the power of positive thinking. It's not some sort of Jedi mind control. But it is the power of biblical thinking. And it is allowing the mind of Christ to dwell in you and to exhibit thinking that is right. And if we're halfway honest, many of us may need to serve an eviction notice to the destructive 
anxious, draining, time-wasting, untrue thoughts that we allow to occupy our mental bandwidth. And we need to replace those thoughts with what is advocated in Philippians 4, verse number 8. And this does not happen by accident. This takes intentional, concerted effort to be able to have this. You don't grow a beautiful garden by accident. Weeds grow naturally, but a beautiful garden does not. You have to pluck the weeds and tend to the soil and plant the proper seeds. It takes work. And in a similar way, perhaps the process of pulling up the weeds that you've let grow in the garden of your mind is long overdue, and you need to do that this morning. And you need to replace them with things that are true and right, and verse number eight will tell us this. I love how David did this in Psalm 42. I won't read the whole chapter this morning. You can read it on your own time throughout the course of the week. But it gets to the end of the chapter and David says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for yet shall I praise him. He's the health of my countenance. He is my God. What David is saying is, I feel cast down. I feel depressed. I feel distraught but I'm going to labor to hope in God. I'm going to labor and work to praise Him. I'm going to remind myself that He's my resource center. This is similar to what a Bible college teacher told me when I was probably 18, 19 years old. He was talking about thoughts that go in our mind and how to control those. And he said, you turn the channel on your mind. He said, similar to a TV, that if you click the channel, the, the TV changes and the sounds change and the, and the image change, but in a similar way, you can take what comes into your mind that sometimes are wrong or depressive or, or untrue or impure or whatever they may be, and you, and you click your mind to something else. You click it over to a verse that you've memorized or to the day that you got saved or to a, a beautiful memory with grandma. You click it to something else. And what David is doing in Psalm 42 is he's trying to turn the channel on his thoughts. And he's trying to get to, he's working at, let me control what I'm telling myself. And Paul says in verse number eight, he says, finally, brethren, then he lists eight things and he ends verse number eight with think on these things. Now there's several words that are used in the Bible for think. That word is used about 65 times in, in the course of Scripture, and it's very sparingly this word. It's only used nine times in this way. Sometimes it's translated reckon. It means to compute or to calculate, to diligently take into account, to, to carefully scrutinize, to make sure that it all adds up. It's deeper than just allow these things to bounce around inside of your head. It's roll it over chew on this, mull on this, give mental bandwidth to this, fixate your mind upon this. You say, so what should we fixate our mind upon? Well, he gives us the eight things, and I'll cover them quickly. He said, whatsoever is true, not false, not deceitful, valid. Is it true? Can you bank on it? This stands in contrast to lie and deceit. Of course, we know that the touchstone of all truth is in Jesus who is the truth, is in his word because thy word is truth, and is even in the gospel, which according to Galatians 2.5 is truth. So we know that that is the bedrock and foundational for all truth, and this is why bathing your mind in truth and even in the scriptures is so important to your own spiritual stability. This is why we as a church offer like 8,000 different ways for you to absorb and to take in the Bible. 
We offer different Sunday school classes in an early service, in a 1030 service, in a 6 o'clock service tonight that'll be completely different on parenting and those sorts of things from Colossians and in a Wednesday night Bible studies. And, and then there's Ironmen and then there's, there's ladies on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I could go on and on and on. Why do we offer all these things? Because we want to swim in and soak up and absorb truth as much as we possibly can. And the more that you absorb truth and have that in your mind and dwell on that, the better off you're going to be. So Paul says, think on things that are true. Then he says, think on things, whatsoever things are honest. Now, this is the only place in Scripture that this word is translated honest. It's normally translated a grave or venerable, something that's marked with dignity, something that is noble. This is, this is so much more than words. This is think on the things that are going to lift you above the world's filth, above the world's scandal, and is going to allow you to instead think on things that are dignified and that are worthy. Then he says, think on things that are just. This is righteous or right, to pose to being crooked. It's just thinking in general, but it's even just thinking towards other people that I want to think about that which will be fair to all the parties involved. I don't just want to think of what I feel would be right, but I want to think about what is fair. I want to think about what is right. I want to think about what would steer me towards understanding and contemplating the needs and rights of other people that I want to think on what is just. Then he says pure. What's reverent, clean, not mixed with sin. What's what's not besmirched or tainted by evil in some way. And I'll be the first to admit that our culture has declared war on what is pure. That purity is no longer in style culturally. And if you want to have a pure mind, that is going to take hard work. But it's worth the effort. You don't want to allow someone to track mud on the carpet of your mind. You want to work very hard at the water cooler or in the neighborhood or even with the relatives at the family functions that you not allow yourself to think on and to allow in the gate of your mind things that are impure. Then he says what's lovely. This is what's acceptable or pleasing or amiable or even causing love. It's a rare word. It's the only time it's used in all of Scripture. And this really goes beyond morality and ethics and starts to press into aesthetics. And Paul says, I want you to think on things that are even aesthetically pleasing or things that are things that are not unacceptable things that are not displeasing but what is uplifting encouraging what is lovely then he says i want you to think on things that have good report things that sound well or spoken well of once again this does not necessarily have a moral connotation it represents a kind of conduct that is worth considering just because it's spoken well of by people in general that which has a good reputation i want to think about that and then he encapsulates all of these really with these two descriptions. If there's any virtue or if there's any praise, virtue is this word for moral excellence, that I want to think about those things that would, that would be the good to which I want to strive for, that which is the ethical best that I could achieve. And even praise, this is not just praise to God, although it includes that, but it really is that which is commendable. That which you could commend or praise someone else for, that they did right, that there's something observable that you could say this is, this is good. Once again, this is entirely contrary to what the modern media in our culture would do. Typically speaking, a news outlet or a newspaper would focus on and draw attention to that which is of ill repute, that which is vicious, that which is blameworthy, that which is negative, 
not that which is of good report or pleasing or lovely or, or praiseworthy or commendable. This is the opposite of what inundates us so often. This is why Romans 12 can tell us that we're not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the renovation of our mind or making our mind better. I would challenge you this week to take the Love Your Neighbor week seriously because it would correlate to this verse. If you get some ideas and you get some cards and you make it your goal this week that every day I'm going to do something that is lovely and is pleasing and will engender love towards me and to God from someone else in my culture around me, that I'm going to do things that would be reported of well, that would be commendable or praiseworthy or dignified, that I'm going to do my best to be kind and lovely this week as I move through and I'm going to think about and I'm going to look for opportunities to do that, I promise you what will happen happen is as your, as your mind begins to look and think and process what's good, what's lovely, can I let them go first, can I pay for their gas, can I help them, can I bless them, that will change your week. It will change your actions and it will change the sum total of what your week looks like because you are thinking on that. And you can apply this verse to, to every real life circumstance and scenario. What we've already talked about, we talked about the tension between these two women. If these two women will have the mind of Christ and they will think on things that are just and right and pure and lovely, and they will think on, okay, what would help this person to love me? There's tension now. What would allow this person to love me easier? What would be the just thing to do or the right thing to do? Not what I feel like doing, but the just or right thing to do right now. What would be the dignified response to this dialogue that we're having, that we're bantering back and forth and we're nipping at each other all the time? What would be the dignified response to this? What would be commendable or upright? As you begin to apply this to your everyday scenarios that come your way in life, this will help you process the mind of Christ and how you should act. And this is why Paul can go directly into verse number 9, and these really are pieced together, where he tells us in verse number 9 that those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do and the God of peace shall be with you. What Paul is saying here is conduct yourself properly. I want you to think on these things. I want you to bring forth positive, healthy thoughts, but I also want you to do. He says, and it makes sense they would fall this way, right? Because the basic order is think, then do. The thought is the father of the deed. Adrian Rogers said it this way. He says, where my mind is, my feet will follow. So you think, and then you do. And Paul says, what you learned, do. What you received, do. What you heard, do. What you saw in me, do. You say, man, that's vague. What did they learn? What did they receive? What did they hear? What, what did they see in Paul? It's not vague at all. If you know anything about the life of Paul, or if you know anything about this book of the Bible, if you've been here for the past three chapters of Philippians, you know that this is, this is extremely simple. Paul had learned and wanted to teach them over and over and over again to strive together for the faith of the gospel. What had they received? Paul makes this abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that what he received and what he wanted to pass on to other people so that they could receive it was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. It was the gospel. What, what had they heard from Paul? They had heard to count everything but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ to work at and push towards and move towards relationship with Jesus to know him. What had they seen in Paul? 
to live as Christ and to die as gain. Everything that they learned, heard, received, saw in Paul points back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It all goes back to that. And Paul is saying, don't just think properly, do something with it. Act in a way that is in accordance with the gospel. Live it out. Don't just absorb information. Don't just stew on it in your mind. Actually put this into practice and do something. Not just cognitive. It is cognitive on what we think, but it is also volitional on what we do. And Paul says, think properly and do properly. Live in light of the gospel. And if you'll do this, the God of peace shall be with you. Now, last week we looked at the peace of God. I pour out my anxiety and my worry. I turn it over to God in supplication and prayer with thanksgiving. And the peace of God guards my heart and guards my mind. Now he says, the God of peace shall be with you. Now, there's a difference. They go, they go in tandem, but there's a difference. I did a long-distance relationship with my wife for a year. We had met. I was interning in California while going through school, my bachelor's degree in Arkansas. I was in California. She had come to visit her hometown for a week where she was not living, but I was there. She visited. We met for a week, and we hit it off. Shortly thereafter, she, I mean, a week later, she went down to Southern California, and I left, and I went home to Arkansas. And we began a long-distance relationship where we called each other and we wrote each other and we Skyped a little bit and we did all that sort of stuff for a year. And there were many times throughout the course of that year that the gift of Maggie came to me, that she would mail me some box of goodies or my favorites or, or some handwritten note. And I, I can think of so many different gifts that, that I can now even recall. Some of those first gifts that she had given to me as her, as her little boyfriend or the guy that she was interested in. And those began to come. I can remember she sent me some, some angel's dollars. Those were, it was fake money, like Monopoly money, but you paid for it and you could redeem it at the Anaheim Angels Stadium. And she sent it to me and said, you're going to be out here in a couple months because I was moving to Southern California to get my master's degree to be, well, to get my master's degree and be close to her both. They went together. And she said, you're going to be out here. Let's, we'll go to an Angels game. So she sent us this money. And I got there. We went to an Angels game. It was enough money where we could get really good seats or we could get really bad seats and buy like a trash load of concession stands. And we opted for the bad seats and just a whole lot of junk food. But I can remember those gifts that she gave to me. But then we were together for a year before we got married, and now on my birthday or Christmas or whatever it was, I didn't just get the gift of Maggie, I got the Maggie of the gift with it. And there's a world of difference there. I was very grateful for the gifts that I got when we were long distance, but now that I had her presence, now that we were together, that gift was all the more rich and all the more better because I had the Maggie of the gift. And this is saying, yes, you can pour out your anxiety and have the peace of God. That's wonderful. It's beautiful. That's praiseworthy. But if you'll do this, you can also have a greater manifestation of the presence of God there with you who distributes this peace. And I want both. So Paul says, think and do, and this can become more tangible and more real, the presence of God, even in your life. So, so guard your mind. Dwell on that which is healthy for you, according to verse 8. Then live the gospel out. Don't just sit on it. Don't just be a spiritual not on a log. Actually do something. Engage in your walk and see if you don't get a greater manifestation of the presence of God. But thirdly, consider all things discerningly. 
There is something larger at play in this text that I don't know that I ever realized before I just did a, a deep dive on this over the last couple weeks. In the list that Paul gives us in verse number eight, presses beyond ethics, and it presses beyond morality, and it presses even into aesthetics. And Paul places a very special emphasis, I believe, on the breadth of the qualities that we can allow to occupy our mind. He does this in two ways. First, he gives you the indefinite adjective whatsoever over and over and over again. If anything is true, if anything is pure, if anything is lovely, he does that over and over. But then he includes in this list things that are lovely, things that are of good report, things that are commendable. These things are not inherently Christian or moral in nature, but they are beautiful in nature. And why would, why would Paul do this? I can't say for certain. I know what he's doing. I can't say for certain the motive, but I believe the motive is that perhaps the Philippians are being persecuted by the society around them. This is abundantly clear. That they are being ridiculed and criticized and hurt and maligned physically and ostracized by the society around them. And although this was happening, I think that Paul knew there was an inherent danger that they would reject everything outside of the walls of their church as indelibly tainted with evil and run from all of it. And while the society at large was in Philippi, and Stephen even still is today, hostile towards the gospel and evil, it is still a part of God's creative order and world and does contain good that a believer can consider discerningly and even affirm. Now let me thread this needle very carefully. So if you'll, if you'll listen carefully, I'll speak very carefully because I don't want you to mishear me. And I don't want you to take this too far one way or the other. Scripture never recommends the wholesale acceptance of the society around us. It's abundantly clear in the Bible that we as Christians do have marks that set us apart as different from the world around us. And the Bible is almost beside itself when it asks us, how could, you, how could you not understand this? That when you know the love and the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it does make you different and you do stand out, that you, that you are salt and light. And the Bible is even clear that this will inevitably lead to persecution and being ostracized. That we as Christians do stand as beacons of truth in a dark world. That we shine, according to chapter 2 of Philippians, we shine as lights in the midst of, of a crooked and perverse nation. So it's abundantly clear that there is not a wholesale acceptance of the culture and society around us. But the scripture is also very clear that there isn't a wholesale rejection of the culture around us. That we are to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Elsewhere, Paul can speak of the Gentiles in Romans and he says that the Gentiles have the law of God written on their hearts. They're not, they're not saved. They don't know God. But they have the law of God, the natural law, written on their hearts. And they even occasionally do what is good and what is right because of that. That they're born with the innate knowledge that murder is wrong. And they act on that. Paul can say in Romans 13 that pagan dignitaries are instruments of God's using that they adjudicate right and wrong on his behalf they're the authorities and the powers that he's put into place, even though they may not be Christian. Paul can, in Acts 17, quote a secular poet 
and use that to his advantage to make a point in the positive to the men of Athens at Mars Hill. So here's, here's the point. When we're thinking and considering and processing and stewing on the, the things that are here in verse number eight of Philippians four, our default mode to the culture around us is not outright acceptance and it is not outright rejection. Our default mode is to be discerning to use gospel discrimination. And here's what will happen. If you accept and embrace culture undiscerningly, you will be swallowed up by the enemies of the cross of Christ. The word of Christ will cease to dwell in you richly. You'll begin to embrace anti-gospel mindsets just by means of cultural osmosis that you'll begin to buy into individualism or materialism or relativism or whatever culture is trying to throw at you, you will become numb to the Spirit of God and His Word if you undiscerningly accept what the world has to offer you. But if you wholesale reject the world around you, Here's what will happen. You'll adopt a pessimistic attitude towards everything that's outside of the walls of church and you'll become irritable and touchy and you'll stalk from work to home to the voting booth to church with a scowl on your face and you'll retreat into a very anti-intellectual, let me never read or discern anything that is from someone that I don't completely 100% agree with and you'll become a sort of spiritual hermit. Where at the worst, you'll want to create some sort of ultra-utopian society where just the believers will live together away from all of the darkness and we'll just have our own little community where, where we'll be good. At best, you'll have this mindset where you, where you yearn and you long for the days of yesteryear and the days have gone by that were somehow inherently moral than today and woe is me, I wish it was the 50s or the 1800s or whatever slice of time you want to pick. And both of those are unhealthy. You are not supposed to accept it all, far from it, but you're not supposed to reject it all. You're supposed to discriminate what is coming at you outside of Scripture or Christianity in a very discerning way. This is why Paul began the letter to the Philippians praying for them that they would abound in their love and that that love would be in knowledge and judgment so that they could approve the things that were excellent. If they need to abound and increase in discernment and judgment so that they can approve the things that are excellent, that seems to indicate they're not just hightailing it and running from culture and just rejecting it all. There needs to be, this is a mark of spiritual maturity that you're able to discern and to weigh and to allow into the gate of your mind that which will actually be profitable and to reject that which is unprofitable. You want, as a Christian, a mind so steeped in the scriptures that you're able to approach the values and the ideologies of the world around you and you're able to engage it with a critical eye and to discern where it misses the mark. Let me see if I can illustrate here is what we are to do. I'm not big on object lessons, but I'm going to give you one today. This is our mind. This, according to verses 6 and 7, is our anxiety and our worry. It's just a little bit of dirt mingled with, a, with some good water. There's some anxiety and some worry and some unhealthy stuff that inevitably begins to infect our mind. And according to verses 6 and 7, we're to take that, this is going to represent the, the mind of the Lord, 
It's infinitely larger than this, but it'll work for the point of the illustration this morning. And you're to pour that out to God and get that out of your mind with thanksgiving and to go to him and uh, turn that over to him and take your worry and your anxiety and shove it to the side. Now, my mind is empty. What do I do with this mind? Well, you fill it. So you start first and foremost with what is absolutely pure and good. Jesus, the gospel, his word. You're able to take that and allow it to, to fill your mind and to become good and right. But what do I do with all of the things that are not inherently moral? What do I do with the TED Talk from a Muslim girl who's advocating women's education in the Middle East? What do I do with the opera? What do I do with the symphony? What do I do with a book from the secular scientist who's telling me how a, how a male and female brain are developed in different ways over the, over the different stages of time? What do I do with all the things around me? What do I do with the, with the art museum? What, what do I do with that which I can't say is inherently just pure in and of itself or that it's ethical or moral, but, it, but it's the world that we live in? What do I do with planet Earth that's narrated by David Attenborough, who best I know is far from Christian? What do I do with that television show? What this text is advocating is that there's a filter called the gospel of Jesus Christ that you want to take all of this that has, that has some good that has something that's acceptable, that there are, there are things that are praiseworthy. And I can take Gandhi, who's not a Christian, who knew the message of Jesus and refused to believe that Jesus was a substitutionary death. But I can take his life and I can pour that through a gospel filter and I can begin to extract things from there that are pure and good. I can learn from that man how to bring my body into subjection because he did it better than anyone I've ever known. I can learn from that man how to not be, how to let my life be in moderation, how to not have vengeance and violence mark me. He, he mastered peaceful protests and trying to enact change in a peaceful way with, without trying to incite violence, from which Martin Luther King took a lot of cues from. I can pour him through the gospel and I can find some things that are good. I can take the Catholic Church, which I would disagree with a whole lot of stuff there, but I can take their stance on abortion and the advocacy that they've given to the pro-life movement that frankly far outshines any Baptist churches that I know, and I can pour that through a gospel filter and I can get from that something that is praiseworthy and something that is commendable and something that I want to chew on a little bit and I want to learn from. Now you don't take this too far and just say that I'll allow anything into my mind and I'll watch any trash I want on TV and I'll do whatever I want. Don't go there. But also don't go to where we reject and we run from and we live in isolation from a world around us and we can never learn or glean anything. Paul is saying you take that, you pour it through what you learned, heard, received, saw in me, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there are things that will be lovely. There will be things in the art museum that may be that you want to avoid, that are risque, or they depict some scene that actually is not good. But there may be a lot of things in there that are lovely that you could look at and could be good that you could, that you could dwell on. I could apply that over and over and over and over again, but you want to allow into your mind, it's more than just what's ethical. He presses beyond that. You want to have knowledge and judgment so that you can approve the things that are excellent. The goal is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you can discern. 
The goal is to be spiritually mature. And part of being spiritually mature is using the gospel so that you can discern what is beneficial and what is harmful. And it's a lot easier to take a verse out of context and say, well, Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners, so I'm just going to run in the muck with publicans and sinners all the time and just allow that to affect my life and rub off on me. Not good. It's a lot easier to take a verse out of context and say, come out from among them, be separate, so run from everything in culture and, and, and just be reactionary and rejective to anything. And depending on your background, your spiritual palate may have been set with one or the other. That I accept it all and I unwittingly allow anything into my mind and I don't discern. And I don't think about what I'm watching and I don't think about what I'm listening to and I don't think about what I'm reading. Or the opposite, I completely stiff arm anything that doesn't agree with me 100%, which frankly is nothing. And you want to be able to take you want to be able to have the mind of Christ so that you can say, Lord, I, I see Philippians 4.8. I see Philippians 4.9. Lord, I want my thoughts to be pleasing to you. Lord, I want to think on what is pure and right and lovely and just and commendable and virtuous and praiseworthy. I want that to be me. And Lord, more than that, I want my actions to be pleasing to you. I, I, want, to, I want to do the gospel. I want to live it out. So Lord, I need your help. And Lord, I need your wisdom. And Lord, increase, increase my knowledge, increase my discernment. Lord, give to me more so that I can discern, so that I can approve. And the more that you, the more that you digest scripture, the more that you digest the gospel message, the more that you digest Jesus, the easier this will become to you. So, so what, what do we do with this? I, I tell you first, work at your thoughts. Work at them tend to them. Serve the wrong thoughts and eviction notice if you need to. I tell you, don't sit and just absorb the gospel and not live it out. That's, it just doesn't mesh. It's supposed to be lived out. Do something this week. Give some acts of kindness. Come to a faith that works. Pray this week. Give your thoughts to the Lord this week. Work it out. I tell you, beyond that, begin to pray and say, Lord, give me judgment. Give me knowledge. Give me discernment. I want to be able to move through life and the workforce and all that's going to come at me this week. And I want to be able to process that and I want to be able to have wisdom in this. And I want your help. I want you to guide me and I seek you. And if you do that, I think that you'll find that you'll exhibit a spiritual victory and a spiritual maturity that you had yet to find. Hopefully many of you have found it, but if you haven't, this is what Paul says. Curate, bring forth, conjure up healthy thoughts. Live a life that's in line with the gospel. But see the big picture here of what he's saying, that I, I want to consider everything in a very diligent, gospel-mannered way and to be discerning with what I allow my intake to be and how I move through the culture around us at large.